The following audio is from the Sunday morning worship service at First Baptist Church in Clayton. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcclayton.com. Well, this morning we're going to be back in Colossians chapter 1. And today we close out chapter 1. After eight weeks of being in Colossians, we're finally closing out chapter 1. And according to my count, if, uh, if everything goes the way I've planned it to, which it rarely does, but still, um, if it does, we're going to be, it's going to take us seven weeks to get through the rest of Colossians, chapters 2, 3, and 4. So uh, it's going to fly by once, once we get through chapter 1. There's been a lot of material to cover in chapter 1, and, and since it's been a couple of weeks, let, let's recap a little bit before we get started. Uh, Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossae. He's probably never been there himself. Um, in fact, at, at the time of writing this, he's most likely in prison, uh, perhaps in Rome. And uh, while he's there, he meets Epaphras, who is a member of the church at Colossae. Um, maybe the pastor, we're not really sure. And a, a, another man from the church named Onesimus, who is a runaway slave who belongs to Philemon. And so the book of Philemon is written to a man who's a member at the church in Colossae. And um, uh, Paul tells them that he prays for them regularly. He tells them he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's verses 9 and 10. Um, Chapter 1, and then he breaks out verses 15 through 23 in this, uh, this song of praise, this hymn to God. Uh, and then he talks about suffering for the sake of the gospel, which is where we were now three weeks ago. And so today we pick it up, and uh, our key text is going to be 26 through 29, but I want to pick up in 24 to give us a little context going into where we are today. Um, so if you can, let's, uh, let's stand together as we read the word that God has given us this morning, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for your word. And I pray this morning that, uh, that you would speak to us about the hope that is found in Christ uh, and, and proclaim to us through the gospel. Um, pray that you will use my words this morning to faithfully um, teach, faithfully preach your word. Uh, may we leave here uh, changed. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Well, the very first thing he talks about when we get into verse 26 is this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, one of the problems when we approach the biblical text is that we tend to, is, well, we don't tend to, we do. We bring with us our understanding 
of things through our um, culture and our context. So all of us um, read the Bible through 2012 lenses, okay? And, and I don't know about you, but when I hear the word mystery, like I immediately think of something dark. And, and I think the reason for that is because of, of uh, books and because of television that have been thrown into this mystery genre, where there's always something dark, always something eerie about a mystery, right? Who shot JR? Okay. Right? See? Uh, see? I'm a youngin', but I, I know Dallas, all right? Um, okay? And, and, and so we're always, like, when, when I hear the word mystery, I immediately go into this, like, whodunit, right? Like, I, I become, like, a redneck Sherlock Holmes, okay? Um, now, the problem with that is that that's not the kind of mystery he's talking about here. It's not some sort of dark, eerie um, mystery. What, what he's talking about here, uh, the, when Paul uses the term mystery, it's something that was once hidden, now revealed. And that's what he says in verse 26. This mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And the mystery that, that he refers to is this. That through Christ, the promise that was made to Israel in the Old Testament has been expanded to include all peoples everywhere. Now, these uh, Gnostic teachers in, in Paul's day would also claim that there was some sort of a mystery. And this may be the false teachers that he refers to later on when we get into chapter 2. Um, they would claim that you had to have some sort of mystical experience to have full knowledge of God. That there was something um, that, that not a whole lot of people possessed and something that you had to really look inside yourself to find these deep truths of God. Whereas Paul says in Christ, he has revealed this mystery. Not only to Jews, but now the mystery is that the whole world through Christ, will now be included in the promises made to Israel, okay? Um, uh, and he says this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay? So they are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, in the Old Testament, a Gentile could become a Jewish believer. That was possible. But he would always be considered a lower level Jew. Not really Jew. You, well, you're, you're kind of a Jew, but not really because you weren't really born. You, you came into it later. So, so you're, you get some of the promises, but not really all of it. And, uh, and you're, you're kind of in, but not really. And what Paul says is that in Christ, there is no distinction. Um, and he says this uh, in, um, in Ephesians chapter 2. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard me use this verse at one time or another. We're going to pick up Ephesians chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 12. It says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth 
of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this is really what Paul deals with in, um, in Galatians, where there were these, these men called Judaizers who were coming in and saying that in order for a Gentile to, fir- to become a Christian, he must first become a Jew. Have to go through circumcision, have to go through all the Jewish rituals to become a Jew, then he could be a Christian. And, and Paul sa- in Galatians would say, no, it's not Jesus plus circumcision, not Jesus plus anything, it's Jesus. So in our day, um, I've always kind of thought that, um, that that sort of relates to uh, churches who say, well, in order to fully be a believer, you have to have Jesus plus something. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church membership. And, and look, all these things are good. Baptism is good. Church membership is good. I would say church membership is um, high on the list, along with baptism, of, of things that you should um, have in your life as a believer in Christ, but all that's required for salvation is faith in Christ alone, okay? But, and in that, in that faith in Christ alone, we are brought into this promise to Israel in the Old Testament. And the Bible calls us fellow heirs, not somehow second-level believers um, in Christ we have been brought near to God through um, the blood of Christ. Okay. Um, in Hebrews one and the, the Hebrews chapter one verses one and two, um, the writer there kind of explains this more, this mystery in the Old Testament and how it's been more fully revealed in Christ. He says, "Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets." And when he says that, that at many times and in many ways, that can also be translated bits and pieces. And so as we look back at the Old Testament, you can kind of see this progression. God reveals a little bit of himself as you go throughout the Old Testament. He speaks to prophets at certain times and in specific ways. If you remember Moses, Moses had to go up on the mountain to meet with God, and he was the only one who could meet with God. In the days of the temple and the tabernacle, the high priest entered into God's presence one day a year, and he was the only person allowed to go into God's presence. And so in the case of Moses, he would go up on the mountain and meet with God. God would tell him his plans, then he would come down and um, explain what God is doing and God's laws to the people. So God revealed himself at, at many times and in many places in the Hebrews of Uh, The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, but, this is verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So in the Old Testament, God spoke to certain people at certain times. Through Christ, he has spoken to all people everywhere and, and has made himself fully known through the person of Christ. Okay? So that is... um. That, that's, that's where we are here in Colossians. This mystery, once hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The gospel is not just for a select group of people, it's for all people. 
Verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we see that God is revealing His glory among the Gentiles. Uh, and 1 Peter 2.10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, and then also, we, as we already looked at Ephesians 2, uh, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Gentiles who were once excluded from the covenant have been brought in. And this is to show the glory of God or the riches of the glory of God, as Paul says it. And then he closes out verse 27 with this. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, the Bible tells us very specifically that believers are in Christ. 2 Thessalonians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, believers are in Christ, but, but maybe even more astounding is that Christ is in believers. Romans 8.10 says this, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sins, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that even though your body, your physical body is dead and, and or dying because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of Christ. Um, and here, here's, here's where we get into trouble. When we try to place our hope in anything other than Christ. And as it says here, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the only hope of glory. Now, let me flesh this out a little bit. Some, some areas that we try to place our hope in. Um, for a lot of people, hope is placed in marriage, right? Um, I'm, and, and what I'm talking about when I say hope is ultimate hope. The thing that is going to fulfill me. The thing that is going to bring me joy. And, and so a lot of people will place hope in marriage, more specifically in their spouse. So what happens, um, I'm, I'm lonely, I'm somehow incomplete, what do I, I know I'll get married. And so we search for a spouse, for a partner who will um, fill us and fill that void that, uh, that is in us. So what happens is we get married and place all of our hopes and dreams there. And for a while, everything seems great, right? Anybody watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life over the holiday season, over Christmas season, right? Remember after the dance where uh, uh, George is walking Mary home? The, what do you want, Mary? Do you want the moon? Okay, you know. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'll throw a lasso around the moon, right? He's going to rope the moon for her, okay? And oh, the, the promises are so great. Does that Happiness and that and that those butterfly feelings last for the Baileys. Listen, if it doesn't happen in a Frank Capra movie, it's not going to happen in real life, okay? <laughs> and so what happens is we put all of our hopes and and dreams into a person, expecting them to fulfill us, and then when they don't, when they fall short, when all of a sudden you're married. And 
that, that boy who was once so uh, trim and cut and athletic and funny is now fat and lazy and annoying. Okay? And all of a sudden, the, the hopes and dreams that we put on that person to fulfill us are falling short because they were never meant to fill that place. Christ in you, the hope of glory, not your spouse with you, the hope of glory. And I believe that's why divorce rates are so high, even among believers, because even those who put their faith and trust in Christ are still placing their hopes in other people. Um, another area where we see it is in uh, kids, parents putting their hopes on their kids. Uh, two of the main areas that I've seen this are in um, athletics, sports, and academics. So um, parents who, who might have been okay athletes, like see their uh, millionaire NFL player in their son and, and drive their kid to fulfill their own hopes and dreams. Or they see in their, in their, uh, in their child the intellectual capacity, so they drive them to get good grades so that they can go out and provide for themselves the lives that we never had. And what happens more than, I, I'm going to say the vast majority, I would say 95, 96, 97% of the time is that when parents drive their kids to fulfill their own hopes and dreams, the child ends up hating not only the uh, a school or, or sports or band, but they end up despising their parents as well because the parents have put their hopes and their dreams into their children that they should have been placing in Christ, the hope of glory. One other area that I see this a lot of times is work. Um, my job is going to pay all the bills, and if I work hard enough, we're going to get money so that we can have this lifestyle that we want. And, and what happens most of the time is that um, an individual becomes a workaholic, pouring all their time, all their energy, all their resources into their job to the neglect of family. And their home life becomes a wreck because they're putting their hopes in their job. Christ in you, the hope of glory, not your kids, not your spouse, not your job. And here's the thing, when we place that ultimate priority on something other than Christ, good things can become bad things. Spouses are good things. Children are good things. Work is a good thing. Work was one of the things that God um, ordained in the beginning when he created, not, not as a result of the fall. That's what we always think, right? As a result of the fall, God made people work. And so we have to go out and sweat now because, because Adam and Eve were idiots. But the truth is that work was ordained before the fall. God created everything and, and gave it to Adam and Eve and said, and said work the land. That, and as you work it, that will, be, that will bring me glory. So these things are good, but when we place ultimate priority on them, we turn them into an idol. And when we put something in and try to make it fulfill something it was never meant to fulfill, it will fail every time. 
You place your ultimate hope in your work, it's going to let you down. You place your ultimate um, hope in your spouse or in your kids, they're going to let you down because they're not meant to fulfill that place. Only Christ is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, A quote by Oz Guinness, who's an author, it says this, The modern world has scrambled things so badly that today, get this, that today we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. So simple, yet I'm not sure I've heard a description that explains our world better than those three phrases. Things such as our spouse, our children, our work, are meant to stir our affections for Christ. So as, as I grow in my relationship with Michelle, um, th- there are few thing, few relationships in life, I'm not sure there, there is one, um, that reflects the gospel more than a marriage. Um, there, maybe because there's few relationships on earth that require as much forgiveness and grace as a marriage does to work. So, so as, as we um, grow closer to one another and as we fall deeper in love with one another, that should stir our affections for Christ. As I see my children growing up um, and, and God beginning to work in their lives and as they begin to discover things around them, that should stir my affections for Christ the Creator. And, and as we're going to see later in Colossians, when we get into chapter 3, work is not simply something we have to trudge through, but it should be something that we strive to bring glory and honor to God through. Um, then we get into verses 28 and 29. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Uh, so I want to I touch on these two uh, sides of things that he, that he touches on here. Him we proclaim, so we proclaim Christ. When I stand before you on Sunday mornings, the thing that I want you to hear above all is the grace and forgiveness of Christ, the gospel. And then he mentions this warning everyone. So if I'm warning you, if I'm warning my children about something, most of the time that comes with a don't, right? The stove is hot, don't touch it. There are cars in the street, don't play in it. Warning everyone, and then teaching everyone. So if warning is, is the don'ts, the teaching would be uh, the do's. Okay? Um, do brush your teeth. Do go to sleep so mom and dad don't rip our hair out. Okay? These are things we try to teach our children. Okay? Um, now the problem, I think, is where, um, this is where a lot of well-meaning preachers and teachers get off track. Because all three of these are really important. Proclaim Christ, warn what people shouldn't do according to the Bible, and warn what people should do according to the Bible. And I think um, there, there are several ways you can get off track here. The, the first problem that I think a lot, of, a lot of churches and a lot of preachers and teachers, whether it's intentional or not, I don't know, but we forget to proclaim Christ. We, we leave off that first level. And so what happens then is we get into either the do's or the don'ts, and what Christianity becomes 
is a list of behaviors and a list of things that you shouldn't do, right? We don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with the girls that do, okay? And then a list of things that we should do. You got to read your Bible every day. You got to come to church uh, like 59 weeks out of the year, um, okay? Somebody's going to get that at lunch. Um, and, and I'm afraid what happens when we make Christianity do's and don'ts, um, we create one of two kinds of people. Either we create people who look at that and say, um, I want no part of it. I, I want no part of you telling me what I can do and what I can't do. Or secondly, we create people who never hear the gospel, but who when they show up to church hear what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And even though I do a lot of the things you tell me not to do, when I show up on, you know, at church on Sunday, I've got to put on a face and act like I don't. And even though I don't do the things I should do, I've got to show up, put on a face, and act like I do them. And so we've got to have all three of these. First of all, proclaim Christ. And that's what I strive to do. And I, and I, I pray that that's what you hear above all else. Because we're going to talk about some things we shouldn't do. We're going to talk about some things that we should do as believers, but I pray that above all else you hear the gospel proclaimed, that Christ has made us righteous, and because of that, this is how we should live, not live in order to gain approval from Christ. Um, I never want to create a church where people just show up and go through the motions and put on a, a happy face for church and, and our lives are total wrecks when we leave this place. Um, I want to create a church. I want to be a part of a church where even though our lives may be wrecks, our lives may be a mess, Christ is glorified in the mess and we see Christ at work in the mess. Um, but because here, here's the truth. None of us have it together. If, if all the facts were known, if, if our lives were um, streamed on the 6 o'clock news, it, it would be made known none of us have it together. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And the great thing that we have in common when we come in here is that Christ is the Savior. In the middle of the mess, Christ is the Savior. And that's what we can rejoice in when we come in. We don't have to put on a face. We don't have to... Um, act like we don't do all the stuff we're not supposed to do and that we do all the stuff that we do. We can come in and, and rest in the grace and forgiveness of Christ and, be, and spur one another on to good deeds, as, uh, as Hebrews chapter 10 says. There's another part of this. Henry proclaimed, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone Mature in Christ. When all's said and done, um, the end goal of my pastorate here is not to create church members. It's not to fill our sanctuary. It's to present men and women mature in Christ. That we would be growing together as believers. Um, now, now, let me say, I believe that as we do that, as, as we mature in Christ, as we grow closer to one another and closer to God, that, that numbers will come.
because I believe that in our world, even, even in a, a culture that is so um, on the surface anti-Christian, anti-God, even if they're not anti-spirituality, they're anti-church because it represents some sort of establishment. I firmly believe that people long for community. They long for a place where they can come and be welcomed and can worship God. Because as it says here, Christ in you, the hope of glory, there is a God-shaped hole in everyone that he put there and that, that nothing will fill except for Christ. And I believe that people long for that. And if we are people here at First Baptist Church who are following after Christ, letting him guide us, people will come. I think we've seen it. I think we've already seen it in the short time that we've been here. People are coming. Not because I'm the world's greatest preacher. Because Christ is a great Savior. And if we proclaim Him, that's what our world needs. That's what Clayton needs more than anything else. Is the Gospel. Um... As I said, we do, if, if we don't, if we don't proclaim him, what we create is this, what's called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Um, I act a certain way, uh, I do certain things, and somehow God is thrown in that mix. Um, what, what we want to, to do, and, and actually that's the, that's the complete opposite of the gospel. The gospel is not I act a certain way to get God's approval, it's I, I have been forgiven in Christ, therefore now I live a certain way. Um, the gospel is this, uh, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that leads us to 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And for this I toil, uh, chapter tw- or verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We're going to touch on this more next week. Um, but Paul says this is what he spends himself on, is to proclaim the gospel, to present everyone mature in Christ. This is what he spends his energy, um, as it says, uh, for this I toil, struggling. That word struggling is, um, the, the Greek word that's used there is uh, agonizomai, which we get our word agonizing, and actually it's an athletic term for athletic competition. So he is he is struggling. If any of you have ever played sports, there's some struggling that goes into playing sports to be excellent. And that's what Paul's saying. I am struggling. I am, I am working at this. I am exhausting myself to present you mature in Christ. And then, like I said, we'll cover that more next week. Um, in closing, I, I have two questions for us. The first one is very simply this. Where is your hope placed. At the end of the day, when no one else is around, and you're honest with yourself, where is your hope placed? Can you say, in all honesty, my hope is placed in Christ, or or when we really evaluate, when we do a gut check of ourselves, is our hope in something else? So that's the first question. The second question is this. What do you exhaust yourself for? Where is your time, energy, talent, 
resources spent. Because the Bible tells us, Matthew t- or Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And where your heart is, is where you're going to spend yourself. What do you exhaust yourself for? I'll be honest, I think your answer to number one, where your hope is placed, is going to be the same answer for number two, where you exhaust yourself. Um, so as Gene comes, I, I want to do something. I don't, I don't do this very often. Uh, I want us all to close our, bow our heads, close our eyes. Uh, nobody looking around, because uh, th- this isn't for anyone else. This is just between you and God. Um, I, I just want to know, if, if you're here today and, and you say, Kyle, when I, when I really do a, a heart check and I look at my life and, and ask where my hope's placed, I realize that, that it's not in Christ. Ultimately, I'm hoping in something else. If, if that's you, just raise your hand, put it back down. Um, just I, uh, at, at the end of the day, my hope is, is somewhere else. So what I want to do is, is just pray for us. That, that God would change our hearts. Focus our hope on Him this morning. Father, we, um, we are people who get so distracted so easily. and that's, We understand that's, that's not news to you. God, as your word says, Christ is in us is the only hope of glory. So Father, I pray for, for everyone here in this room that, that we'd be people who place our hope in you, who are not looking to, to friends or family, our spouse, kids, uh, our work to fulfill us, to, to give us joy, but that we would place our hope firmly in you, that these other things might uh, stir our affections for Christ. God, change us. Change our attention. Change our attitudes. Um, God, change our actions. So that we might be people who are focused on you, who exhaust ourselves, like Paul says, um, to make the gospel known and to, to live lives that bring glory and honor to you. God, I pray as we, as we roll the calendar over, as we start a new year this week, that that this would be our chief goal for 2013, that we as individuals and we as a church would follow you completely wherever it is that you might lead us and to whatever you might be calling us. I thank you for this church. I thank you just for the opportunity to serve here. Um, Guide us all. Uh, Show us your plans for, for our lives and for our church as we start a new year. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Sunday morning worship service at First Baptist Church in Clayton. We are located at 223 Oak Street, and we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings for Sunday school at 945 and worship at 11. You can reach us at 374-9285 or at fbcclayton.com.